Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am thrilled to have with me today Dr. Charlie Brown, who is one of our cardiac anesthesiologists and has a special research interest in the area of postoperative delirium. And he's coming on the show today so that we can talk about it, about delirium and post-op delirium and various things we can do to think about it, treat it, prevent it. Charlie, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. All right. Well, let's jump right in. So let's start kind of right at the very beginning. What is delirium? So generally, we think of it as a acute and fluctuating course of inattention, um, there are a lot of different ways to define it. The gold standard is a psychiatric diagnosis using DSM-5 criteria, but that is is hard to do. So there are a lot of different ways to go about it, but they all focus and really center around this acute and fluctuating course in inattention and thinking. All right. So inattention. And are there different subtypes of delirium? So we generally think of three subtypes. So there's a hyperactive subtype, which we think is most clinically evident, and these are the patients who are agitated, pulling out their IVs. It's very clinically obvious. There's the hypoactive delirium, which are patients that are less clinically obvious, more sedated, more apathetic, maybe not participating in their care. And then there's a mixed variety. Now, importantly, the hypoactive delirium, we think the consequences are just as profound as hyperactive, although in the clinical setting, it's much less picked up. And so when people think about instances of delirium that they see in published studies and what they see in clinical practice, the discrepancy is generally due to missed hypoactive delirium. And so do we think, obviously it's hard since it's often missed, but is there one that's more common than another or equally common? So generally, hyperactive is probably the least common, and hypoactive um, being the most common. Okay. And the mixed variety is kind of fluctuating, some of both? Mixed is in the middle. And, and mixed are people who, throughout the course of their hospital stay, will manifest different symptoms at different times. So that in serial testing, at some points you may see a hyperactive component, at some points you may see a hypoactive component. And how do you diagnose delirium? So the gold standard is is the DSM-5 criteria by psych- psychiatrists, and that would be used in a research setting. Um, practically, uh, the most popular method is, is called the confusion assessment method, the CAM, and that was developed by Sharon Inouye um, several years ago, and she's a seminal researcher in delirium. And basically, uh, it breaks it down into four questions. Does the person have an acute and fluctuating course? Is there inattention? Is there changes in their thinking? And is there changes in their level of consciousness? And really, from a um, research perspective, we and and Dr. Inouye's group do a structured interview with a cognitive battery that might include the mini mental status exam or, or digit span forwards or backwards, as well as unstructured questions to elicit symptoms. And based on the 
those questions, structured and unstructured, uh, diagnosers will answer each of those four questions for the CAM criteria. Um, the CAM ICU was developed by Wes Ely's group and really took the CAM questions and allowed them to be asked in intubated, nonverbal patients. The CAM ICU is both used in a research setting and then often used clinically as well. Okay, great. So the CAM, the CAM ICU, probably the most common, as you said, uh, way we diagnose delirium or at least uh, suspect delirium in the hospital. So do we know what areas of the brain are involved in, in this uh, in delirium? So it, it's unclear, and it gets to the notion of what delirium is. There, there are thoughts that um, there's disruption in connections between areas of the brain. Um, there's thought that it's a cortical disease, but I think it's, it's really the pathophysiology of delirium is, is still to be elucidated. It's a work in progress. Okay. So, and just to revisit, when we go back to the CAM or the CAM-ICU, those are questions. So the, the CAM-ICU, for example, one, one of the questions is to have them squeeze your hand whenever they hear the, the letter A when you spell out save a heart, right? So that is testing attention, is that the main thing that that's testing? Yeah, so there's different different questions um, that are somewhat easy to answer um, and could be common sense. Um, another example was, are there fish in the sea? Squeeze my hand if yes, and that would be a testing of thinking. Okay. And so you can see that these questions um, d- doesn't require a great deal of cognitive ability to be able to answer correctly to. And so the CAM ICU ends up being highly specific, so that if you f- are diagnosed with delirium by the CAM ICU, you likely have it. But in patients that are non-intubated or not in the ICU, it often is not sensitive, meaning we're not picking up some patients who are truly delirious with this CAM ICU scale that really doesn't require a great deal of cognitive reserve to complete accurately. Now, sometimes we hear people saying, oh, they're alert and oriented, so they're not delirious. Is that true, or is it possible for someone to be able to know their name, where they are, and what day it is, but still test CAM positive, for example? Yes. So with, without a doubt, um, knowing orientation questions and some of the basic questions that are asked in a clinical setting, you can still be delirious, even if you're answering those correctly. Um, And I think when you look at the published literature, it's one of the reasons that delirium is probably underdiagnosed is is a reliance on certain kinds of questions or or a non-formal setting. Okay. So you look specifically in your research at post-operative delirium. Is, Is delirium more common after surgery than it is just from being in the hospital? It's probably more common after surgery. It really depends on the type of surgery and the location. So in general, ICU delirium is quite common, both in the medical um, ICU as well as the surgical ICU. And then it's quite common in high-risk patients, those who are older, who have lack of cognitive reserve, low education. When you start getting into specific surgeries, you can see that there are certain surgeries that have a high incidence of delirium. So cardiac surgery, um, hip fracture surgery are two that come to mind immediately as Mm -hmm 
you know, regardless of the patient type, there's a, there's a high risk of delirium in those populations. Okay. And so what are, so you mentioned high-risk surgeries such as hip uh, surgery. Are there, are there other risk factors you think about for developing postoperative delirium? Yeah, so there's a fair number of studies both in the medical um, space as well as the surgical space. And I would say putting them all together, the biggest factors in my mind would be age and then baseline cognitive status and education. And those three factors consistently are seen as strong risk factors across many types of populations. As you start getting into individual studies, um, comorbidities and some index of how sick you are is often an important risk factor. And then other things such as fluid status, electrolytes, um, cerebrovascular pathophysiology. Um, but really, age, cognitive status, those, those, those go across all studies. And is there an age cutoff that, that is kind of higher risk, or is it just a gradation? It appears to be more of a gradation. Okay. Is there um, any kind of inflection point? Uh, you know, uh, is, for example, um, a 21-year-old, a 20-year-old, and a 25-year-old have a similar yeah. risk, but when you get up to 60 or 65? Yeah, you know, it, it seems more like in the 70, 75 range is where you, start, is where you see inflection points. Okay. And so, uh, and then other, are there other high-risk surgeries besides hips, spines maybe? Yeah, so we've uh, done some work in in spine cases, especially bigger spine cases recently, mm-hmm. and, and shown up to a 40% instance of delirium in some of these multi-level spine fusions. And so I, I think it, it also goes to show that as, as we start understanding how common delirium is and start looking at different higher-risk populations, we're, we're going to be finding it in surgeries besides cardiac and hip fracture as well. It's clear that hip fracture are very vulnerable patients. It's not surprising the incidence of delirium is so high. And how high is it in, in hip fracture patients? It, it can be, it's been reported in the 40 to 50% range. Okay. And that's kind of as high as it gets. Yeah. Generally, 50% in hip and cardiac surgery is as high as reported incidences have been. Okay. And so what happens if somebody gets delirious in terms of what does that mean for them long term? Are they going to recover? Are they not? How do, we, how do we think about this in terms of the consequences of developing postoperative delirium? Yeah, so I think that uh, it's a really important question because it gets to this notion of is delirium an event that happens that is self-limited and goes away? And if there are no consequences, then the argument would be how much do we really care about it? And I think for a long time that has been a, um, a prevailing attitude. And I think only within the last decade has it been recognized that there are longer-term consequences associated with delirium. Um, so Sharon Inouye's group has published several studies in both cardiac surgery and non-cardiac surgery, um, suggesting that there are longer-term cognitive consequences and deterioration among people with delirium versus not delirium. And interestingly, she sees a, a decline in the immediate postoperative period, so within a month in the delirious group, and then a recovery towards baseline. But generally, cognitive scores may not recover quite to baseline, and then even up to a year, three years afterwards are still lower than in the non-delirious group. Um, There have been several papers looking at functional status as well, suggesting there's a decreased functional status among patients with delirium. And then clearly, hospital factors, length of stay, length of stay in the ICU, um, falls, costs and charges, 
those have been consistent in studies suggesting the hospital-related factors are worse in patients with delirium. Has anyone looked at, I imagine, and I've seen when I have patients who develop post-operative delirium, it's, it's very disturbing for family members. Has anyone quantified that at all or, or done anything looking at the kind of cost in terms of emotional toll on families, or we just kind of know that it's, it's tough? I think we know it's tough. There's a colleague here who's done a lot in the uh, PTSD space, um, and I'm sure some of these lessons he's learning on, on quantifying this are, are applicable. But I, I think it's a I think it's an important area um, that you know, as I've thought through, PCORI is sort of an obvious place of people who might be interested in that in that regard. But I haven't seen a lot of literature specifically on that. Um, going back to the long term consequence question, I think. That gets into the uh, sort of an important question in the field, which is, is delirium a marker of someone who would be declining anyway? And this is really a stress test almost for the brain. And if so, then maybe that is something that helps risk stratify prognosis down the road or maybe argues that there should be some sort of therapeutic intervention for patients that get delirium, some sort of post-rehab. Or... Is delirium a marker of some other pathophysiologic process that happened in this perioperative event? Is there neuroinflammation? Was there an episode of hypotension? And delirium and longer-term cognitive consequences are both resulting from this underlying event that we may or may not recognize. And then finally, sort of the third major hypothesis is that when you get delirium, things happen to you that don't happen to other patients. You may get antipsychotics. You may not be mobile. You may be restrained. You may not be participating in your care. So are there things that result from delirium? And I think getting to the root etiology, that's going to be important because that's going to influence you know, prevention and treatment strategies. If delirium is on the causal pathway, then perhaps preventing delirium is a strategy to prevent some of these longer-term consequences. And when you think about older adults undergoing elective surgery, Preservation of cognitive and functional status, you know, up to a year after surgery is is a critically important goal for older adults. So to the degree that we understand how to prevent delirium also may prevent other long-term consequences is key. And I'll sort of finish this thought with with a, a quote I saw at a recent conference was that usually things and strategies that are good to prevent delirium are also good perioperative care and are good for older adults in general. So we may not understand the exact relationship of delirium to longer-term cognitive consequences, but I think it's it's clear that good delirium care is, is good medical care for older adults. That's great. I like that a lot, and that's a great segue into my next question, which is, what is good care to try to prevent delirium? So what can we as anesthesia providers do? Let's start with preoperatively to try to prevent the development of post-op delirium. So it's a, it's, a, it's a tough question, but it's the question that I think is most clinically relevant in all of our minds. Um, so I'll focus, um, I'll, I'll sort of start by saying the best evidence for delirium prevention is probably in non-pharmacologic approaches. Um, the HELP trial or HELP program was run by Sharon and Way and, and focuses on things like early mobility, um, giving patients back hearing aids and visual aids, making sure fluid status is correct, electrolyte changes um, are controlled. 
So a lot of things that aren't magic bullets but are good medical care. And she showed a 30% reduction, um, up to 30% in, 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 a large, in a large trial. So I think good medical care is a, is a key component of, of prevention strategies. Now, when you think about us as anesthesiologists um, and, and some of the things that we can control in the, in the perioperative period, uh, I think looking at types of drug choices is important. Um, depth of anesthesia may be important. So things like avoiding um, large doses of benzodiazepines, um, choosing approaches that can uh, minimize certain drugs um, that may be important to avoid, meperidine. Um, depth of anesthesia has recently emerged as a potential way to prevent delirium. So there's been four randomized trials suggesting that a strategy to um, titrate and avoid excessive depth of anesthesia may be may reduce the incidence of delirium. That's both been in general anesthesia and spinal anesthesia patients. Um, and a correlator of that has really been avoiding burst suppression. So there's an observational study suggesting that burst suppression is associated with the incidence of delirium. And there's an ongoing randomized trial to, um, to look at that exact question. Um, in terms of things to do in the preoperative period, there, it's an interesting question that there's not a lot of data on right now. Um, there's been two or three studies in the past year suggesting that patients with poor sleep-wake patterns, even before surgery, have a higher risk of delirium afterwards. Um, and so this is this a marker of someone with vulnerable brain pathology or is this something that can be intervened upon is unknown. Um, I would say that mobility and promoting mobility, there's not great evidence for in the preoperative period, but I think fits with a lot of thoughts that we have that mobility is important for preventing delirium to the degree that you develop some sort of reserve prior to surgery may help you in the immediate post-operative period. But there's a lot of work to be done in that space. Okay. And so when we look at things like people will ask me, I'll have residents ask me, should I, you know, if I give two of Versed preoperatively, uh, is that going to increase the risk of post-op delirium? And it sounds like you're saying there's not a lot of data. We don't really know. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a lot of data in that specific um, small exposure. So clearly in the ICU with longer-term exposures in terms of infusions for sedation, there's there's reasonably good evidence suggesting that benzodiazepines are associated with delirium. My, my practice has been that if, if someone, if a patient needs it for um, anxiolysis or an arterial line placement, you know, I will give small amounts of midazolam, uh, but not... But I won't give it to people who, who really don't need it. And if, right. and if you're 80 and, and you don't need it, there's no reason to, to give to benzodiazepines just because the patient's going to surgery. Right. Okay. But there's no reason to hold it back, I think, if you give it in small doses for someone who's anxious or needs it for a procedure. Okay. Great. So what about intraoperative options? And one thing I'm curious about specifically is if you do a procedure without any general sedation. So, for example, let's say you do a, a wrist surgery under a block or a knee surgery under a spinal with no propofol, no sedation whatsoever. Does that patient still have an increased risk of delirium, even though all they got was a local anesthetic block? 
I would um, that patient will probably have a, a decreased risk of delirium. Um, delirium is probably is is multifactorial, and so there are things in the inflammatory response and decreased mobility, changes in electrolytes that will still increase your incidence of delirium. Um, but if I were a patient with high vulnerability, that's what I would want. I would want a a block and no sedation or as minimal as possible um, to decrease, you know, a modifiable risk factor. How about volatile anesthetics versus TIVA? Has anyone looked at that? Do we know if one's riskier than another? There's there's not great data to suggest that one either volatile agent or volatile agent versus TIVA is better or worse for the instance of delirium. Okay. So what, if anything, can we do intraoperatively? It sounds like using... uh, Nerve blocks, if possible, is one thing to do to allow us to decrease the depth of any sedation or avoid it completely. Are there other intraoperative techniques or things we should keep in mind to try to prevent or attenuate delirium? Um, So, you know, I start with sort of basic good anesthetic care, um, ensuring cerebral perfusion, um, keeping patients, you know, effectively but not overly hydrated, um, and then choosing drugs wisely, so minimize, minimizing benzodiazepines, choosing non-opioid strategies as, as effective, and that can include regional anesthesia or, you know, Tylenol or, you know, you have to tailor the anesthetic. Um, but clearly pain is a risk factor for delirium, so it needs to be controlled. Um, and then, you know, then, it, uh, then the depth of anesthesia is clearly something that can be controlled independent of the types of um, anesthetic agents that, that you're going to use. Uh, but really, there there is no magic bullet in the in the anesthetic care. There are a couple reasonable steps uh, to take. Okay. Now, how about postoperatively? So, what is the? Are there any strategies we can use to try to prevent the onset of postop delirium in patients, especially high risk patients? So, a couple things I would say. Um, that early mobility is is key. Um, there have been several studies um, suggesting that early mobility decreases the incidence of delirium. And does that have to be walking, or is, for example, doing some biking in bed enough, or even passive range of motion? Is how much uh, mobility is needed to get that effect? Yeah, I, th- I think in general with delirium and other outcomes writ large, it's, it's unclear what the dose and response is. Um, my bias is the more you're doing, the better. Yep. Okay. Um, so I think early mobility, and then um, there's always been this question of do prophylactic antipsychotics, are they effective? And I think there have been conflicting studies in each camp suggesting um, a benefit or, or lack of benefit. And when you look at the guidelines, there really are there there are no guidelines suggesting it at this point. The, okay. the evidence, the, bur- the burden of proof is not there. Um, there have been some interesting studies recently on the use of dexmedetomidine um, as a uh, sedative agent and also as a prevention agent for delirium. Um, and clearly, in several larger ICU studies. The use of dexmedetomidine as a sedation strategy has been associated with reduced incidence of delirium. And whether that's due to sparing of other sedatives or whether there's a actual effect of dexmedetomidine itself, whether it's anti-inflammatory or, or sleep-wake cycles improving, is unknown. But there has been a trial within the past year suggesting that um, in higher-risk patients 
who received dexmedetomidine in the ICU as a prevention strategy, even patients who were not intubated um, benefited with a reduced incidence of delirium. So this, I think it was an important study because it was one of the first to really look at the, the additive effects of dexmedetomidine not necessarily sparing of other sedative agents. Right. And so should I be starting my ICU patients on Presidex uh, on an ICU arrival, or do you think that we're not, we're not there yet? I don't think we're there yet. I, I, I go back to um, sort of a, a talk I heard about the replicating large trials, and that if you look back at the guidelines if there are two trials that suggest the same results, guidelines that are based on that are much less likely to be reversed than guidelines based on one trial. So I think we have one trial, um, albeit a larger trial, but I think before we really say hey, this is this is the standard, we that needs to be repeated. All right, great. And so Certainly, if, if, you're cons- if you have to use a sedative agent in the ICU, Presidex is probably a great choice. Yeah. But maybe we're not quite at a preponderance of the evidence to start giving it to everyone prophylactically. Correct. So early ambulation, if you need to sedate, Presidex. Once someone develops delirium, is there anything we can do to treat it effectively? Um, so I would again go back to starting with non-pharmacologic protocols. Um, so even with someone with delirium, mobility is important, uh, and, it, and it can be hard. And I think one of the downsides on a focus on falls, let's say, is that now by making sure this is a never event, we may actually be reducing mobility, which probably will increase the incident delirium. So non-pharmacological approaches. Um, when you talk about pharmacological approaches, um, generally – the recommendations have been that patients who are a danger to themselves or others, so patients hyperactive delirium, um, that is when pharmacologic approaches should be considered, such as antipsychotics. Um, starting low um, and really titrating up. That being said, there is not great evidence to suggest that giving antipsychotics really is associated with longer-term improvement in any of the longer-term outcomes we care about, such as cognitive status, um, functional status. So it's really, from the guidelines, has been a way to um, reduce danger to self or others, but not necessarily to improve outcomes associated with delirium themselves. And that's why there's been a focus for hypoactive patients to not give antipsychotics just because they're diagnosed with delirium. And I think that's an important message. Okay, great. So non-pharmacologic stuff like day-night orientation, you mentioned putting hearing aids in, putting glasses on, getting the lights off at night and on in the morning. Is there, what about earplugs? I think I saw a study once that suggested that using earplugs at night for patients in the ICU might be helpful. Is that a a thing? It is a thing. Um, There's been a couple studies looking at sleep-wake cycles, and uh, there's a, I think it was a Canadian study that looked, when you go from uh, recovery room with multiple patients to single room, how does that impact the incidence of delirium? They, they found no difference there. So I think right now the, the sleep-wake cycle is, is intriguing, uh, but there's not 
great data suggesting um, an, an improvement in delirium. But I, I think it is, is when you look towards the future and future areas of research, it's clearly going to be one of the areas that people are going to be focusing on. Great. Charlie, is there anything about postoperative delirium that we didn't cover that you think is important to mention? So I think it's an exciting time to be looking towards the future of uh, delirium research and taking care of patients, older adults, better. Um, there's a more of a focus from the national societies now on, on, on recognizing the importance of brain health in the perioperative period. So I think there's a, a couple different avenues um, that are really being pursued nationally. So there's a, been a definite focus on neuroinflammation um, and even the resolution of neuroinflammation, a focus on cerebral perfusion and really defining what is adequate cerebral perfusion in individual patients and how does, how does that play into the pathophysiology of, um, of delirium. Uh, and then incorporating multimodal strategies revolved around sleep, early mobility, et cetera, into bundled packages is, is going to be more and more important in this notion of you know, protocols of care. Great. Charlie, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this with us. Great. Thanks for having me. All right. Incredibly useful stuff. That was really great having Charlie on. He's really becoming an expert in this area. This is something that is an important focus and plays a huge role in the quality of life of our patients, and we should really be paying attention to it. And I'm excited to see what comes in the future with the research that people like Charlie are doing. Remember to go to the website, accrac.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave comments on any of the episodes. Let us know. What has your experience been with post-op delirium? Do you have a protocol at your institution that you use to try to prevent it or to treat it? What have you found useful? You can also email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. And if you go to the website, in the upper right-hand corner, you can join our mailing list. You'll get a notification about any new episode, and you'll have a chance to receive anything else that I send around. If you haven't already and you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and rating. It really helps others find the show. All right, that's it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Charlie Brown, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.